Sunshine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm your host, Brett Wilkinson. First, the news. Good morning with your news. I'm Wissani Matevula. A human rights lawyer says three convicted criminals have been secretly executed in the first hangings in Nigeria since 2003. The executions breach a seven-year moratorium on the death penalty. Chino Obiagu of the Legal Defense and Assistance Project says three men who had been death row inmates for 20 years were hanged in Benin prison in southern Edo State on December 23rd. All had been convicted of armed robbery. Obiagu says his organization wrote to the Edo State governor on December 21st, warning that the men had outstanding appeals, making the hangings an unlawful act. The Central African Public Parliament has approved a 45% budget increase for 2017. This is government based that a gradual return to peace will boost development despite thousands of people still displaced by violence and attacks persisting. Central African Republic descended into chaos in 2013 when mainly Muslim Seleka rebels seized power in the majority Christian nation toppling President Francois Bozize and wreaking havoc on the country's fragile economy. Despite continuing tensions, economic activity has picked up this year, which according to the IMF report in September, including in the coffee, cotton and forestry sectors. The remains of South African soldier Mwalusi Mokhotu, who died during clashes with the Mai Mai rebels in the Democratic Republic of Congo, are expected back in the country on Saturday. SNDF spokesperson Brigadier General Kolani Mabanga says Mokhotu died 10 days ago while serving as a member of the Force Intervention Brigade of the United Nations Stabilization Mission. Mokhotu will receive a heroic parade before his body is handed over to his family. Mabanga says the name of the 27-year-old soldier will also be inscribed on the wall of remembrance. The body will arrive in South Africa and thereafter the South African National Defense Force will formally receive it in a heroic parade at the Air Force Base Waterloo, where after it will formally be handed over to the family for further preparation for the funeral. What we know now is that family is planning for the 7th of January, which is the coming Saturday. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a ceasefire between Syrian opposition groups and the Syrian government starting at midnight on Thursday. This comes after Moscow, Iran and Turkey expressed readiness to broker a deal to settle the nearly six-year-old Syrian war. The Syrian army has announced a nationwide halt to fighting, but said Islamic State and ex-Nusra Front militants and all groups linked to them will be excluded from the deal. It didn't say which unnamed groups will be excluded. And finally, Egypt's government has approved a deal to hand over two Red Sea islands to Saudi Arabia and sent it to Parliament for ratification. This is despite a a legal dispute over the plan. The deal, announced in April, caused public uproar and rare protests by Egyptians who said the uninhabited islands of Tehran and Sanafir belong to their country. The controversy has become a source of tension with Saudi Arabia, which has provided billions of US dollars of aid to Egypt, but has recently halted fuel shipments amid deteriorating relations. And that's your news. In this special edition of Rise and Shine, we bring you a Christmas message from South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, followed by South African President Jacob Zuma with his New Year address. First up, Cyril Ramaphosa. Fellow South Africans, I am honoured to share our government's message with you during this 2016 festive period. On the 10th of this month, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the signing of our constitution. We continue to draw inspiration from the values and objectives of the constitution of our country, the birth certificate of our nation. During this month, we also mark three years of the passing of our global icon, Nelson Mandela, the father of our democracy. As we celebrate the legacy of Madiba, we rededicate ourselves to the ideals of building a non-racial, non-sexist and a democratic society in which all our people, black and white, can live in peace and harmony. On this occasion, we remind ourselves that the adoption of the Constitution was the culmination of decades of struggle waged by our people at home and abroad. As we celebrate these achievements, we honor those who made huge sacrifices in the struggle for peace, freedom and democracy. We also honor those who work to build and to develop our country. As we mark this milestone, we rededicate ourselves to the core values of our constitution. We extend our gratitude to the people of our region, Southern Africa, our continent, and the world who provided us with material, moral, and political support during the struggle for democracy. In the two decades since the constitution was adopted, We have worked together to give effect to the rights and freedoms it proclaims. Working together, we have lifted millions of our people out of poverty by providing houses, electricity, water, and sanitation to millions of households. We have built, equipped, and staffed new hospitals, new clinics, 
schools and colleges. For much of the last 20 years, we have had a growing economy that, together with our transformative policies, has provided many opportunities to our people that never existed before. As a nation, we are hard at work to develop our people through education and training, to improve their lives through quality health care and social support, and to grow our economy by expanding our productive capacity. This year, we have sustained our investment in transport, energy, telecommunications, and water infrastructure. Our country has become more attractive as a destination for investment. This has come about and has been done through the creation of special economic zones in a number of areas in our country, the establishment of Invest South Africa to assist investors in getting projects going faster and through targeted incentive programs. Through joint efforts of government, business and labor, we are hard at work to increase investment opportunities, support small enterprise development, address youth unemployment and maintain South Africa's investment grade status. Deliberations among the social partners on the introduction of a national minimum wage are nearing conclusion, with most stakeholders supportive of the proposed wage of 20 rand per hour. The introduction of a national minimum wage will go a long way in reducing wage inequality and wage poverty. It is a matter of great concern to us that more than 50% of employed South Africans earn below 20 rand an hour. We are grateful for the efforts made by leaders of labor, business and communities to develop a common approach to these critical issues facing our country. All social partners are agreed that 20 rand per hour is not a living wage. They consider it as a starting point to begin the process of reducing wage inequality. In 2016, we continued to work to improve the health and the well-being of our people by intensifying our efforts to end AIDS and TB. We have provided antiretroviral treatment to well over 3.4 million South Africans infected with HIV. We have significantly reduced mother-to-child transmission of HIV and look forward to zero transmission in the next few years. Working together with our social partners, we have embarked on major campaigns to prevent new infections, particularly among adolescent girls and young women. Social trends like older men having sex with younger women continue to undermine our prevention efforts as young girls become targets of macho mobile men with money. We are nevertheless certain that working together, we can create an AIDS-free generation in our lifetime, especially if we empower our young girls and young women through education and economic opportunity. To all the young people in our country, please remember to condomize. Never engage in risky sexual behaviors. Fellow South Africans, if we are to succeed in building an inclusive economy, we need to ensure that the youth of our country can access affordable quality education. In this regard, government will continue to work with all key role players in the education sector 
to resolve challenges of access and transformation that have been presented to us by the student movement. Let me take this opportunity to congratulate the class of 2016 as they anticipate their final metric results. We remain convinced that you will help to build on the success of previous classes in making our country proud. Compatriots, one of our major concerns as a nation remains the high number of facilities arising from road accidents. We therefore call on all road users and pedestrians to obey the rules of the road, don't drink and drive, and please arrive alive. Let us work together with all our law enforcement agencies to ensure we are all safe during this festive season. We wish you all a Merry Christmas, as well as a joyous period with your family and friends. I thank you. Ngia Togoza, Ngia Bonga, Ngia Leboha, Ngia Libua, Nakenza. That was Deputy President of South Africa, Sir Ramaphosa. Now we have President Jacob Zuma. As the year 2015 draws to a close, let me take this opportunity to thank all citizens for their contribution in various ways to making South Africa a better place. Each passing year, our country moves forward towards a better life for all against many odds. We worked harder again this year. Millions of children of the poor and the working class receive free basic education and nutrition in schools and more schools were built to improve the learning environment. More students from poor households received funding for higher education in 2015 and this matter will receive further attention in the new year. More elderly people and the poor continue to receive free medical care in government health facilities. South Africans are now living longer due to improving health care. The life expectancy is now 62 years of age, which is an increase of 8% since 2005. More people receive social grants to enable them to put food on the table, especially orphans and vulnerable children, the elderly and persons with disabilities. Progress has been made in various other aspects, including our participation in the international arena. However, more hard work awaits us all in 2016 as challenges still remain. Our goal is to build a South Africa where economic opportunities increase for all and not 
just a few and where inequality, poverty and unemployment become a thing of the past. In this regard, the pursuit of economic transformation will continue. We have to work further in 2016 to achieve broader and more meaningful black economic empowerment and participation in the economy. This will ensure long-term economic development as well as unity, healing and reconciliation in our country. In the short term, for many of our people, including our unemployed graduates and all young people, success in 2016 will mean finding jobs. We will continue to focus on the areas we had mentioned in the 2015 State of the Nation Address in what we called the nine-point plan to ignite economic growth and create jobs. We will need labor and business to work with government closely as we create the enabling environment for inclusive growth and job creation. We will further explore opportunities in agriculture, mining, small business, development, energy, growing the country's ocean economy, transport, water and sanitation, and telecommunications. We will also work further to improve the functioning performance and governance of state-owned companies. We will continue stabilizing the labor market and to pursue agreement on the national minimum wage. Information on all these matters will be provided further in the 2016 State of the Nation Address. We will also consolidate the gains of democracy in 2016 by taking local government transformation and performance forward through the Back to Basics campaign. In this regard, we should all register to vote in the coming local government elections and use our hard-won right to vote. Importantly, we should remember that we all share the responsibility of building our country. There is a lot that is good and great about South Africa and its people. Let us highlight our achievements more in 2016 and then work together 
to fix what still needs attention. I wish all citizens a happy and a successful new year. Remember to drive safely on the way back home from the holidays and to cooperate with law enforcement officers on the roads. We also wish all tourists and visitors to our beautiful country a wonderful stay in South Africa and a happy 2016. I thank you. South African President Jacob Zuma. All Lesotho nationals living in South Africa illegally have until the 31st of December 2016 to pay for the Lesotho special permit or face deportation. Application centers have opened up at six Lesotho border posts to receive the applications. Applications made this year will be received and the supporting documents can be submitted in the year 2017 by the end of March. If you are one of those that still have not applied and you are traveling to and from Lesotho, then use the mobile visa facilitation centers at the six border posts. And if you are unsure about what to do, then phone the VSF call center on 087-230-0411. That's 087-230-0411. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. African literature consists of a body of work in different languages and various genres, ranging from oral literature to literature written in colonial languages, such as French, Portuguese and English. Oral literature including stories, dramas, riddles, histories, myths, songs, proverbs and other expressions is frequently employed to educate and entertain children. Some of the first African writings to gain attention in the West were the poignant slave narratives. As Africans became literate in their own languages, they often reacted against colonial repression in their writings. Others looked to their own past for subjects. Thomas Mofolo, for example, wrote Shaka, about the famous Zulu military leader in Sesotho. Much of contemporary African literature reveals disillusionment and dissent with current events. To help us analyze African literature further, Here's Rax Sieko, South African cultural activist and writer. I think what defines African literature is Africa itself as um, a place and a space and Africans themselves, how they interact with that space, uh, the land is quite, a, quite a, a lot of things. If you go back in, in time... Looking at uh, some of our iconic uh, African writers like Chinua Chebe, Bomofolo, Kunene Maziz Kunene, Miriam Tladi, Din Kodima, people like that. I think you could say what really defines our literature is this particular time and space we are in, confronting the issues of the day. You would remember that uh, we were a free people first. And then we were rudely interrupted in 1652. 
So what was said before and what has been said after, I think it defines what we, we may term as uh, African literature, which will be different yes. from other places. Definitely. Because they didn't experience what we've experienced. Yes, going on from what you're saying now. So what are the storylines of today? Like you say, okay, um, we were free before, then of course there was the, you know, the mm. whole oppression, yes. repression of mm-hmm. us. In the 60s, it was about liberation struggles mm-hmm. around the continent and so on, you know. But what is the discourse today? Uh, today, when we, if you look at uh, in our country, there's been quite a huge output of literature, particularly the novel, and to an extent, short stories. Poetry is quite big also, but the novels especially, and, and the issues addressed are issues of the day. We today are commemorating or marking the splite, the HIV and AIDS, you find that quite coming through in, in a lot of work by South African uh, writers, but also across the continent. We also are faced with uh, issues that uh, were taboo before. You couldn't talk about them. You know, the whole question of um, gender, you know, looking at uh, the equality of the sexes, if one is to put it that way, to also look at this uh, thing called a human being that it's uh, not actually always all the time men and the woman you know you find that there are people also who have chosen or who are born you know looking at life in a very different way than the normal or well again saying normal is a very controversial word itself so you find it is uh, coming through quite a lot. But now, you know, with the, this generation and the generation before it, how important do you think is the role of African writers in informing young minds? The thing is, I, I wonder if young people today even read. Mm. You know, what with social media? Most of the time they're sitting in front of computers. I don't know. I think it is quite rare to find a young African holding a book which is not mm. a school book. Yeah, you know, my, my answer to that question about the love affair between the young African person and the written word, uh, particularly in book form, is that uh, perhaps we are a bit too hard on ourselves. If you look at the development of societies and that's a development of the means of production and you go to things like a book, a pen, those things have not always been there. Human beings have not always dealt with books. In fact, they're a very recent phenomena. We used to, and I want to say we, I'm not only talking Africans, I'm talking a human being. We, before we graduated from granting and uh, pointing when we were communicating, and later to develop what we call language, and then later the language itself had to be congealed, had to be you know, put uh, on something that we can exchange. That's It's been quite a journey. As you know, even in the Bible, you're still talking about the, the tablet. You know, people wrote on stones. Yes. And the discovery of uh, papyrus, which is paper. And then later, we bind it and we call it a book. It's also very recent. And I think, with a bit of help, our youth especially could be um, quite good, you know, increasing their love of reading and of course writing, uh, by using the modern type of book, which is like your computer, your tablet. Now, I mean, you can do everything 
on the phone. Yes. Even you email, even you design, you know. So I think it's a, it's a matter of waking up to a lot of things in the world, in life, aligning themselves. Just going on from what you've been saying, you know, but what about storytelling? You know, storytelling, you mm. hear stories of, you know, children sitting around a fire in the evening and mm. your grandfather or your grandmother, I know my grandmother used to tell me mm. terribly scary stories. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and some nice ones, of course. <laughs> you know, but yeah. you sit there and listen. You know, where is it? Has it been abandoned, that form of communication, that form of literature, I would say? I think yes and no. There are communities that uh, where this is still very strong. Mm-hmm. I know I come from a, a village in, in the northwest. I was born in the other side of Mafiking. Mafiking, I'm just using as a point of reference, but my place is not even on the map. It's called Eight Cake. We grew up with uh, with the stories being told to us. Um, I go there quite often. I find the, the small kids with my mother. She still tells them the stories. But I think it's also told in, in, uh, in other ways. We need to exploit what we have today, things like television and, uh, you know, radio. Radio still is playing a very big role in, in terms of uh, storytelling. Yeah, so I think we just need to move with the times. So when things change, behaviors also have to change. Still speaking about South Africa Mm -hmm. here. Now, we know that South Africa boasts quite a remarkable literary tradition, you know, meaning that so far we have had two Nobel laureates, Mm -hmm. numerous writers, Mm -hmm. who are internationally acclaimed. But is that enough? No, it it can never be enough. Uh, With a population of uh, 56 or so million people, Mm -hmm. yeah, if you look at your number of writers, uh, they they run into a few thousand. And uh, only very few will be very well known. And even amongst that few, a very small minority will, will be able to make a living out of their craft of writing. Um, so I think a lot has to go into that. I'm very happy with, with the, the South African state since uh, we have conquered apartheid. Quite a big chunk of, uh, of the budget goes towards education. But I think that has to now really be worked on quite... Um, in a very tough way, to remove the shackles mm. that used to be around education. I believe the schools still teach some of the things that we were taught long before, but it was conquered. And uh, I think we need to take our heads off for the students, not the violence part, mm. but what they're articulating, yes. that they not only want free, as in financial free education, mm. but they free education in terms of the colonialist content. It must be colonialism free. So that's quite a lot of uh, stuff to do. Um, Earlier I was telling you that I was in Cuba in 2010 bringing this in because I went there at the International Book Fair held in in Havana. I went with our Nobel laureate uh, the late Nadine Kodima. It was very impressive what you found there. One of the days uh, it was about lunchtime we were going to the book fair at a naval base. And there was a long, long queue, you know, reminiscent of our 1994 election day. And I asked our interpreter, those people, why are they queuing there? Are they queuing for food? Because it was around lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me like um, crazy. She said, no, no, they are queuing for books, you know. And uh, the way the, the country, uh, Cuba, has a very serious mind on on literature, they even 
gave people day offs or half days at work and the schools had to close for a while and they chose also the month of February towards Valentine's so that also they incorporate, you know, this love, you know, uh, romance into the thing. But I think of very great importance is that uh, Cuba managed to almost obliterate illiteracy within very few months they took over. You know, as you know, so far, I don't know of a country that uh, competes for the throne that Cuba was given, I think, a year or two after their independence, the revolution, uh, by the United Nations. It gave them that award that within a matter of 24, 48 wow. months, you know, and the, the, the kind of education. Quality. Yeah, they changed. Those days you're talking about creation of a new man. Of mm. course, it's the creation of a new human being where you need to start to show people that we can live equally. We can live in a society that I'm not poor because you are rich. You know, there's no exploitation. Mm. You know, no one goes home uh, to sleep hungry. No one is able to say, I can't read and write. Because all that depends on our access to the means of production, what is on the land, what's underneath the land, and, and the land itself. And I think education, when kids are talking about the mm-hmm. free and decolonized education, I think uh, Cuba is a, is a very best example of that. But now with African literature, do you find that authors prefer to write in the colonial languages like French, Portuguese, English, you know, rather than their mother tongues? Because I would think that not many people would go out and buy books written in our native languages. So that would not be profitable if they were to say, I'm going to write in Iskosa or mm. Nisvenda and things like that. Yes. You know, colonialism is a very terrible thing. It's a terrible thing because... With colonialism, they start with, uh, and I'll use a very rough and uh, crude term here, they start with cutting off your tongue, you know, so that then you no longer speak, you know, you do like they do. And they get into your brain, they also do something very terrible there. You are changed from being proud of who you are. You want to be like them. And uh, they are not doing it nicely to you. They chain you, they beat you up, the people have been killed, Mm -hmm. you know. And then they change your own laws, your own beliefs. And and for a long time, they will hold you onto that through their jails and exiles Mm. and banishments, you know. Mm. So, your question, are you then surprised that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, people will be feeling more civilized when they do like master, like mm. mistress, mm. even the language, even the behavior. I know the hair people can do all sorts of things to, to themselves, even the hair, you know, we do, and even our skin, we have to get something, We, you know, it's, it's, it's a very terrible thing. So it takes quite a bit for you mm. to be able to reverse that and live proudly, exactly. you know. Mm. So... The question of African writers writing in former colonial masters' language is true, but again, the perception is a class-based perception in that it's got a, a tinge of uh, colonialism with it. It will be those who have been exposed to this 
to the language and the schools who will be writing and reading in those languages. But the vast majority of people, at least in South Africa, we are lucky because we are still speaking Sizulu, Sivenda, Sisutu. And for, for, for quite a while before you go to tertiary education, we read quite a lot of our own uh, things that are written in Sisutu, and, or at least that's how I grew up. And I think this government and this society, this generation particularly, and, and I think others to come, owe it to ourselves not to push this very hard that you can only learn your language up to a certain standard at school. As soon as you go to tertiary, drop it. But now, that's looking at now the gender part of it. <laughs> you know, I, I believe that we are seeing more female, young ones, female African writers emerging, you know, emerging from the continent. And Mm. if so, what do you think their commentary is? Do you find it focuses more on the role of women in modern society or do they work like their male counterparts do? I'm very, very glad that uh, the theme that comes through in a big way is the restating of the position of the the woman person, the woman person, you know, in that there's been a terrible malady over centuries throughout the different stages of uh, social development from pre-slavery to slavery, feudalism, capitalism now, the woman's place has been terribly diminished and yet the woman is the bearer of, uh, let me say, of of the whole of the the society. Men concerned as woman says, of half of the society, I guess, because, you know, part of them are men, part of them are women. And women across the world are in the majority. But their role, whether you find them in books or in society, in leadership, at many levels, mm. corporate, rural and urban and government, is very diminished, which is a very unfair thing. You can't be having the majority being ruled. The same thing we are fighting against. We fought against apartheid. Mm. The minority, tiny, tiny minority rules the majority. So I'm very glad. And in fact, I don't think it's coming enough, strong enough. The voice of women looking at, at especially the, the, the feminist, the, the woman approach to life. So I'm very glad with what I'm seeing. And I think more could be done. And I'm very glad even amongst uh, quite a few men have picked up on that in their writing. You know, people like uh, Nuruddin Farah like Zix Mda, you know, the, in their books, the role, the, the characters of women are very, very strong. They are leaders there. And, uh, and I think that's, that's just the way to go. South African cultural activist and writer, Rax Sioko, speaking there to Kosoko Danyaki. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 60547. One seven double one. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial six zero five four seven one seven double one. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Ivoire, also known as the Ivory Coast in the Western Africa, on the Gulf of Guinea, its neighbors are 
Liberia, Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso and Ghana. The country consists of a coastal strip in the south, dense forest in the interior and savannas in the north. Côte d'Ivoire was originally made up of numerous isolated settlements. Today it represents more than 60 distinct tribes including the Baule, Bété, Senufu, Ani, Malenke, Dan and Lubi. Côte d'Ivoire attracted both French and Portuguese merchants in the 15th century who were in search of ivory and slaves. French traders set up establishments early in the 19th century and in 1842 the French obtained territorial concessions from local tribes, gradually extending their influence along the coast and inland. The area was organized as a territory in 1893, became an autonomous republic in the French Union after World War II and achieved independence on August 7, 1960. Côte d'Ivoire formed a customs union in 1969 with Dahomey, now Benin, Niger and Burkina Faso. The nation's economy is one of the most developed in sub-Saharan Africa. It is the world's largest exporter of cocoa and one of the largest exporters of coffee. Félix Oufouet Boigny served as president from independence until his death in 1993. Massive protest by students, farmers and professionals forced the president to legalize opposition parties and hold the first contested presidential election in October 1990, which Oufouet Boigny won with 81% of the vote. Beginning in September 1998, thousands of demonstrators protested a constitutional revision that granted President Henri Conan Bédier greatly enhanced powers. Bédier also promoted the concept of ivoirité, which roughly translated means pure Ivoirian pride. Although its defenders describe ivoirité as a term of positive national pride, it has led to dangerous xenophobia with numerous ethnic Malians and Burkinabis driven out of the country in 1999. President Bédier was overthrown in the country's first military coup in December 1999 and General Robert Gay assumed control of the country. As a result, the majority of foreign aid to the country ceased. The current president is Alassane Ouattara and the prime minister is Daniel Kamblan, Duncan. The capital city is Yamoussoukro. With an estimated population of about 22 millions of those, 56% is literate. Côte d'Ivoire gained its independence on the 7th August 1960. Mutineering soldiers attempted a coup on September 19, 2002. Gay and Interior Minister Dudu were killed in fighting between government soldiers and the rebels. President Laurent Gbagbo accused Robert Gay of staging the coup. Fighting continued even after a French-brokered peace accord was signed on January 25, 
2003, calling the government to share power with the rebels. In November 2004, the civil war again erupted. In May 2005, another peace deal was signed, but no militias dissolved. Elections were scheduled for October 2005, but the UN declared this impossible under the continued fighting. To avert a constitutional crisis, the UN Security Council recommended the president remain in office another year, but that he turn over most of his power to a new transitional prime minister. African mediators selected Charles Konambani, governor of West Africa's central bank, as a candidate acceptable to all sides of the conflict. After several postponements by President Gbagbo, Côte d'Ivoire held its first presidential election in 10 years in October 2010. The first round of voting between incumbent Gbagbo and his historic rival Alassane Ouattara, a former IMF official who was excluded from the presidential 2000 race because he was not a pure-blooded Ivorian, was inclusive. In the second round, Ouattara defeated Bagbo 54.1% to 45.9%. Bagbo, however, refused to accept the result or step down, leaving the country on the brink of civil war. In November 2012, President Alassane Ouattara dissolved the government of Prime Minister Jean-Luc Kouadio Aoussou and Foreign Minister Daniel Cablan was named the Prime Minister. However, conflict and war over the last decade have drastically reduced the number of foreign visitors, which many countries issuing warnings on travel to Ivory Coast. Compared to its oil and agriculture sectors, tourism play only a tiny part in the economy of Ivory Coast. However, given a peaceful and stable political climate, tourism and the service industries could grow again. Change your game. Your game. Be your the game. voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. African Profile
The Republic of the Gambia is the smallest country in Africa. It is situated on the coast of Atlantic and is surrounded on its three sides by Senegal. The Gambia River flows for 322 kilometers through Gambia on its way to the Atlantic Ocean. In width, this small country measures only 32 kilometers. Every year, thousands of international visitors come to the Gambia drawn by its beaches, birds, sunshine and the country's biggest asset, the Gambia people. They are well known for their excellent hospitality and friendliness. Thus, this country was named the Smiling Coast. Tourism in this African country has become the fastest growing sector of the economy, contributing around 12% of the country's GDP and providing employment for over 100,000 people. More and more visitors come every year to the Smiling Coast. The president of Gambia is His Excellency, Yaya Yame. The capital of the country is Banjul. The total land area is 11,300 kilometers squared. The total population is estimated to be at over 1.7 million. The monetary unit being used is the Gambian Dalasi. Some of the languages spoken in this country are Mandika, Wolof, Fula and English, the official language. 99% of the inhabitants are Africans and the remaining 1% are non-Africans. Around 52% of the people of the Gambia are literate. The country is primarily an agricultural country. Around 80% of the population depends on agriculture for income and food. The Gambia was one part of the empire of Ghana and the kingdom of the Isongais. The first written accounts of the region come from the records of Arab traders in the 10th century. In 1588, the claimant to the Portuguese throne sold exclusive trade rights on the Gambia River to English merchants. This grant was confirmed by letters patent from Queen Elizabeth. In 1618, King James I granted a charter to a British company for trade with the Gambia and the Gold Coast, now known as Ghana. During the late 17th century and throughout the 18th, England and France struggled continuously for political and commercial supremacy in the regions of the Senegal and Gambia rivers. The 1783 Treaty of Versailles gave Great Britain possession of the Gambia, but the French retained a tiny enclave at Albreda on the north bank of the river, which was ceded to the United Kingdom in 1857. The Gambia achieved independence on February 18, 1965 as a constitutional monarchy within the British Commonwealth. Shortly thereafter, the government proposed conversion from a monarchy to a republic with an elected president replacing the monarch as chief of state. The proposal failed to receive the two-thirds majority required to amend the constitution, but the results won widespread attention abroad as testimony to the Gambia's observance of secret balloting, honest elections and civil rights and liberties. On April 24, 1970, the Gambia became a republic following a referendum. Until a military coup in July 1994, the Gambia was led by President Se Dadwa Karaba Jawara, who was re-elected five times. The relative stability of the Jawara era was first broken by a violent, unsuccessful coup attempt in 1981. The coup was led by Kukwe Samba Senyang, who on two occasions had unsuccessfully sought election to parliament. 
After a week of violence which left several hundred dead, while President Jawara, who was in London, appealed to Senegal for help, Senegalese troops defeated the rebel force. In the aftermath of the attempted coup, Senegal and the Gambia signed the 1982 Treaty of Confederation. As a result, the Senegambia Confederation aimed eventually to combine the armed forces, the two nations, and to unify economies and currencies. The Gambia withdrew from the Confederation in 1989. In July 1994, the armed forces, a provisional ruling council, seized power in a military coup d'etat, deposing the government of Sir Dadwa Jawara. Lieutenant Yaya AWJ Yame, chairman of the AFPRC, became head of state. In late 2001 and early 2002, the Gambia completed a full cycle of presidential, legislative and local elections, which foreign observers deemed free, fair and transparent, albeit with some shortcomings. President Yaya Yame, who was re-elected, took the oath of office again on December 21, 2001. The Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction maintained its strong majority in the National Assembly, particularly after the main opposition United Democratic Party boycotted the legislative elections. President Yame was re-elected for a third-year term on September 22, 2006, with 67% of the vote. The UDP received 27% of the vote and instead of boycotting future elections, vowed to take part in the 2007 National Assembly elections. In January 2007, parliamentary elections of the ruling APRC party won 42 of the available 48 seats. The Gambia has a liberal, market-based economy characterized by traditional subsistence agriculture, a historical reliance on groundnuts, peanuts, for export earnings, Re-export trade built up around its ocean port, low import duties, mineral administrative procedures, a fluctuating exchange in rate with no exchange controls, and a significant tourism industry. have been listening to African Profile brought to you by Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine this hour. From myself, Brett Wilkinson, and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you for listening. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa, PO Box 91313, Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. 
or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.